Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. This is a favorite psalm of many, many Christians. And this is a great preparation for our corporate prayer time tonight. The question I propose that could be asked is that when Christians come to the place where they need great help and hope, where do they turn? And the answer, of course, is to God Himself. But in what ways do they turn to the Lord? And in what ways does He respond? Well, the answer, of course, is found in many places in the Word of God, but particularly for our purposes tonight, Psalm 27 with King David gives us the answer of where to turn and what God says to us when we turn to Him for grace and guidance and growth. Psalm 27. It says there, Of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold or the refuge of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or meditate in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, For false witnesses have arisen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I see seven ways that God ministers to us. According to Psalm 27, and here's the first one. God provides illumination for your path. I mentioned that this morning. And it's contained in that little phrase there in the first part of verse 1. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my light. Now David could be referring, of course, to military 
victory because it is true that this psalm has some overtones regarding David's enemies. But it could also be a reference here, generally speaking, to the Lord providing guidance for David's journey. And we know this is true because Psalm 43.3 says, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me, that is, light and truth. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. So it could be, Lord, give me light, give me guidance with regard to my military strategy. Or it could just be David generally saying, Lord, you're my light, so illumine my path. Give me the opportunity to know where to go, where to step, where to tread. And of course, if that's what David means, Psalm 119, verse 18, captures it for us. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. In verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, right? David exclaims that not only does God give us illumining light for our spiritual path, but that God Himself is our light. And doesn't that capture what is said about Jesus in John's Gospel? You are the light of the world. Jesus is that light. God illumines our path. We pray to Him. We ask Him, illumine my way. Give me direction. Give me purpose. Give me something for the journey. Give me a way to see more clearly. And God answers that because He illumines our path. Number two, God delivers you from your plight. He says, the Lord is my salvation there in verse B of, 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 of the latter part of verse one. And again, it's referring, I think, specifically probably to deliverance in battle, but it doesn't have to be limited to that. At times, David needed to gain victory over his and Israel's enemies, but the king of Israel also needed spiritual deliverance from sin, importantly, most of all, as we all do. So the Lord is not only the one who enlightens my path, He gives me illumination, but He also delivers me, and He delivers me, of course, from certain circumstances in my life, but the thing for which I need the greatest deliverance is my very salvation from sin. And so Psalm 27 is precious to so many believers throughout the ages because the Lord is said to be the very salvation of my soul. And I've told you several times before, the word Lord there, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, means Yahweh. Yahweh, that Lord. Not any supposed Redeemer, not any would-be Messiah, but Yahweh is the one who delivers. And of course, Jesus is not only the light of the world, but He's the one who comes to deliver His people from their sins, right? So Psalm 27 is a great comfort for us to know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are there to deliver us from ourselves, from our wickedness, from our true plight, so that we may be granted eternal life in Christ. You pray to the Lord, you ask Him for light to illumine your path, and He gives it to you. You pray to the Lord for salvation, and in the sincerity of your prayer, He delivers you from your greatest plight, your greatest peril, and that is hell, death, sin, and judgment, and He gives it to you in the person of Jesus Christ, His Son. Number three, God produces confidence in place of your fears. Look at the latter part of verse 1. We could call it verse 1c, 
all the way through verse 3. Listen to these beautiful poetic lines. Whom shall I fear? David says. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh, the Lord, is the stronghold, the refuge of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. It is God when you pray to Him who produces confidence in place of your fears. And there are many people that have fears. I visited two of our saints in the hospital this afternoon, my wife and I, and, and for Skogie Baker and for Elnora Babich, you know, you can be in a hospital situation, you can be trusting the Lord and you can say, I don't fear, but every single one of us, when you go into the unknown, could be tempted with such fear, right? I don't know the future. I don't know what the diagnosis may be. I don't know what the procedure will result in. And you can be driving down the road and not know whether or not you will live or die in the moment. There are many of those kinds of tests and challenges. And David says, whom shall I fear? We might say, what shall I fear? Yahweh is the refuge of my life. And here's what I heard from those two ladies today. I know that I am the product, Skogie said, of... God's grace and enablement for thyroid cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, or colon removal, and even with a small amount of intestines that I have now, here's what the Lord's doing. Every time I get sick, every time the Lord delivers me, it's an opportunity for me to praise Him. Just a, just a wonderful testimony, and she's been through such a great deal. And for Elnora, in and out of the hospital, in and out of the hospital several times in the last several months, and she's as sharp as a tack, just trusting the Lord, smiling, laughing, even laughing at my poor jokes. Why? Because the Lord is the stronghold of her life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And David, of course, knows this incredibly well because he asks the question, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries, and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. So why wouldn't he say, of whom shall I be afraid? They're the ones who are going to be conquered. And that's why 1 Peter 5, 7 says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God puts confidence in the place of my fear. Do you fear the future? Do you look upon your past as though the worst possible consequences maybe will catch up to you? Do you fear the future? The things that are a part of the unknown? What about our country? What about our future? What about military conquest? What about Friends, family, loved ones who don't yet know the Lord. I've heard many a grandmother speak very, very wearingly of the future regarding their grandkids. What's the future going to be like? I've heard a time or two like you, oh, maybe a hundred or so, 
what in the world is our world coming to, right? David says, whom shall I fear? The Lord is our refuge. You may have to deal with choices you've made, but you have the Lord now. Cast your burdens on the Lord. God is your refuge, your protection, your strength, who will guide you through the darkest hour, no matter what. And you can even face death through the victory which been, has been provided for, the, for you through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why our unwavering trust is squarely upon Him. That's why the, the hymn writer says, Nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. You know the hymn. God produces confidence in believers in place of your fears. And when I heard Larry Baker this afternoon as I visited him, he said, every single time that Skogie has undergone such tremendous, horrific health consequences, even to the point of the operating table and the doctor saying she will inevitably not be able to go through this, instead of she may not be able to go through this. And Larry said, when she did, in fact, come through the worst of that surgery in 2014, he said, we've seen the Lord both before then and during that operation and after that for the next three years meet us in our time of need every single time. His fears were replaced with confidence, the very confidence of God. Number four, number four, God delights in and blesses your worship and praise. God delights in and blesses your worship and praise. I think this is the heart of Psalm 27. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6. One thing have I asked of Yahweh that will I seek after. Here it is, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and to inquire or meditate in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. My wife chuckled at me this afternoon when I read Psalm 27 to Elnora. Because as soon as I read those words off the page... Not only inquiring in the temple of the Lord, and not only that He will conceal me under the cover of His tent, He will lift me high upon a rock, but that I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. Our little son Lancer, when he was just a little tyke, I don't know how old he was, maybe three or four years old, and he memorized this psalm, he, he said, with shouts of joy. And I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. I was with him yesterday, and I thought of Psalm 27, and I thought of this behemoth of a guy now with this very, very deep, resonating, you know, sort of baritone voice. And all I could think of was shouts of joy. <laughs> this, is, this is David. David speaking here of his all-consuming passion to be in the presence of Yahweh and gaze upon the beauty of God's temple. Now this, this gazing upon the beauty of the temple, you, and I've said this before, would normally think of the temple as the idea of where God dwelt. And that would be true. Of course, we know 
that God is omnipresent, right? He's everywhere. Uh, He doesn't confine Himself to a tent or a tabernacle or a temple. He's not in that house, that house of David in Jerusalem. He's not there as though that's the only place He is. He's everywhere. But what God does is He condescends to us and He brings Himself in a localized sense so that His presence would be among His people so that they would know that He's there. That's what the sense of this is. God's symbolized presence with His people And David wanted to be nowhere else but within the very dwelling place of God. In fact, there's a a tripart formula in the Old Testament, and it's mentioned several times throughout several of the Old Testament books. And that tripartite formula is this. I will be their God, they shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of them. That's That's this sense that God is not so transcendent, not so high, not so lofty and lifted up, though He is, but not merely so, God is also near. He's imminent. He's right here. He's here tonight. He's listening to us. He's gauging our gazing. And if we gaze upon the Lord... He delights in and blesses His people when they choose to gaze upon the matchless beauty of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's where He is. He's among His people. And He delights to bless us. And I would assume it's not just His personal presence via His Holy Spirit that's here tonight. He's also present in His Word. You see, when I'm teaching you Psalm 27, and when you are delighting in that, and when you are seeing a point made from Scripture, and you're nodding, it's because you are choosing to feast upon, gaze upon the beauty of God as revealed in His Word. That's what you're doing. And David says when he does such a thing, that God will show Himself as the one who, according to verse 5, look at it with me, hides me from my trouble in His shelter. Now, does David mean physically that he's going to hide me? Well, if you were running from Absalom, if you were running from enemies, yes. Or does David mean that God's going to hide me spiritually in the shelter of His wing? Well, that too. And what do I do in response? I worship Him. I worship Him. I praise Him for this. Our God will conceal me under the cover or the covering of His tent of protection. And when I worship and when I praise Him for doing so, it says He lifts me up high upon a rock. The end of verse 5. And verse 6 says, And now my head shall be lifted up. Above my enemies, all around me. And so when I have this protection, when I have this locus, this center of God's protecting grace, then here's what I do. I offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. And I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Now what does that sound like? 
it might very well be possible that the Apostle Paul thought of Psalm 27 and this phrase, I will sing and make melody to the Lord when he penned what he did in Colossians and Ephesians, that if someone is full of God's Spirit, controlled by God's Spirit, if someone has the Word of God dwelling in them richly, they will sing in their hearts and make melody to the Lord. Right? And you know that phrase there, I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy? Well, for them, it would have been those animal sacrifices. But for us, spiritually speaking, according to the writer of Hebrews, what kind of sacrifices are they? Well, write this down, Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13, 15 and 16. Listen to what it says. Through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. You see, they literally sacrificed animals in preparation for symbolically placing their hand on that animal in a symbolic transference that it was actually their sin that deserved to be punished. And what they're actually doing is they're sacrificing the animal for the shedding of his blood so that symbolically, as my hand is placed on that animal, it is actually the transference of my sin through that animal and the shedding of his blood that's sacrificed. And what happens, of course, for us in the New Covenant is that the very cross of Christ is the transference of my sin to what Jesus did in paying for my sin on the cross. And so what do I do? What, what sacrifice do I offer? I offer to God through Christ the sacrifice of my praise. That's my worship. I continually the writer to Hebrews says, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is, and here he describes it, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. His name is, is emblematic of everything about him, everything that he is, all of his attributes, his, his gazing, beautiful character. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Number five, number five, you want to know what Psalm 27 provides for you? It's this, God listens to your prayers. God listens to your prayers. Look at verses seven through 10. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. That's a prayer. I'm crying aloud. I'm praying to you. I'm, I'm asking you. I'm I'm beseeching you. I'm talking to you, Yahweh. And here's his prayer. Be gracious to me. Be gracious to me. And answer me. That's what prayer is. Right? You're, you're, you're crying out to the Lord. You're asking Him for, for grace and, and for mercy and for help and for strength and for guidance. All the things that we've already studied, right? I mean, I want the Lord to illumine my path. I want Him to replace my fears with great confidence. I want, I want all of these things that we've talked about. And I want you, Lord, as I cry aloud, to be gracious to me and answer me. And if, and if you were the kind of person like David or maybe some of his mighty men or maybe a part of the Israelite army, you'd be praying this quite regularly, wouldn't you? I mean, these, these, are, these are tough days. 
In whatever context it is, remember that unlike us in cushy Southern California, in relative ease and in abundant comfort, maybe we're not as apt to say, Lord, deliver me. Be gracious to me. I need you from my physical foes. I read this afternoon the first account of the family's version of the assassination of Osama bin Laden by his wife and children and their accounts of what happened when the U.S. SEALs went in and did what they had to do for the perpetration of 9-11 and so many other things. And it was the first-hand account of what Osama bin Laden's fourth and final wife and his children were thinking and doing right in the midst of the conquest. Now, if you think that that kind of stuff doesn't happen now in the 21st century in the Middle East, reading that article will show you otherwise. That particular Middle East, that is a hotbed of transgression. That is a festering military conquest of epic proportions for everybody involved. And everybody wants that little piece of ground where the dome on the rock is situated, right? The Christians want it, the Jews want it, the Muslims want it, and everybody hates Israel, and everybody's doing what they can to come against Israel. And if Osama bin Laden can do what he did to try to flaunt his power against the United States of America by bringing down the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center, and then for 11 years, I think it was, the idea of him in a room with his wife, with his children, and seeing those two battalions of SEALs come through there, and to hear it from their own eyewitness accounts, and to hear that Osama bin Laden had his prayer cap on and he was praying to a God who didn't answer, praying to a God who doesn't exist. And David says, I'm going to pray to a God who does. Verse 7, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. Verse 8, you have said, seek my face, the you we presume to be Yahweh. And David says, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. The idea of seeking the Lord's face or having the Lord's faith face shine upon us is the idea of God's favor. God's favor. I don't want you just to look at me. I want you to turn your face and so that when I look at your expression, your face is a favored face upon me. That's what he means. Hide not, verse 9, your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. I mean, David's pleading with Yahweh to answer his prayers. And what does he pray? For grace, sustaining grace. I want to obey you, Lord. 
doing what you command by seeking your face, your favor. I pray that you'll deal with me in your kindness and not in your anger. I pray that you'll continue to help me. I pray that you won't forsake me. I pray that you won't cast me off. I pray that you'll deliver me from false witnesses and from the violent who slander me. That's what he says there. Then he says this, and I'll pray that you won't forsake me even when others have done so even my mother and father. Now that probably doesn't mean that David's mother and father actually forsook him. It's maybe the sense of this, when everybody has left me. Do you remember when Paul was in that prison? The Apostle Paul, and he said this, all have deserted me. All have deserted me. But the Lord stood by me. That's... That's the sense we get at times, right? Nobody's supporting me. Nobody wants to help me. I don't know where to turn. I don't know what to do. And some of you, we've counseled. That's what your sense of life is. I need you, Lord. You can can bank on this, my friends. God listens to your prayers. We're going to pray tonight. Just a few minutes. Let's ask God to listen to our prayers. Number six, God teaches and leads you through trials. Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. Again, you don't have to Think just in terms of the physical conquest of armies against you or our country. Just just think about any trials. When you're facing great, tremendous challenges in your Christian life, remember, it is God who teaches you, and He teaches you through the prescribed way of His mighty Word. That's why He says, teach me. Teach me your way. We can only know His way through His Word. And he says, lead me on a level path. I've mentioned that to you before, a level path. Move away the challenges, the obstacles. Move them away. The obstructions. Strategically remove them. Who is that for us? The devil. The devil, according to Peter, is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's real. And he tempts us and he tries us and he tries to penetrate even into our minds if he could to say you're no good. You have no life. You are worthless. And sometimes we choose to believe him. Sometimes we're tempted into believing that We are what he says. And David says, not so. Not so. Teach me your way. Don't give me up. Don't let me hear these false accusations of the enemy. The one who breathes out violence against me. Don't believe it. Don't believe it for a second. Teach me your way. Lead me. 
That's why you have to avail yourself of God's Word. That's why praying God's Word back to Him honors Him. Teach me, Lord. I pray that you will teach me. Some of these passages, and I've mentioned this before, are the kinds of passages that speak so much of urgency that it's almost like David is saying something like this, when I don't want to avail myself of your word, you please teach me. Make me obedient. Teach me. Lead me. Create level paths. And when God does so, we praise him for it. Seventh and last, God grants goodness and patience to you who are spiritually strong and courageous. God grants goodness and patience to you who are spiritually strong and courageous. Verses 13 and 14. David says, I believe, I'm confident. I bank on the fact that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord, not in the land of the dead, but in the land of the living. I'm going to see it in the here and now. I'm convinced, totally assured, quite confident that before I die, I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord on full display. Now that's a, that's a great attitude to have. You know, when things aren't going so well, should we also ourselves not be reminded that I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ? Do I believe such a thing? Do I, do I resonate with David? I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. And someone might say, Yes, hopefully. I, I want it to pass. I want to see the goodness of the Lord in my life. I want to see Him shower His blessing on me and our, and our church. And if so, what's the answer? What's the answer? What does David say? How do you get there? How do you see it? Wait for the Lord. Oh, man. Lord, Lord, I want you to teach me patience, but you've got to hurry. And the answer is, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. He's never out of step. Never off kilter. He's not run out of time. Wait for the Lord. Wait for Him. Oh, and by the way, when you are waiting for the Lord, what does He say? Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Doesn't that sound exactly like Joshua 1? And, and that, that was a critical time in Israel's history, right? Moses is off the scene. Joshua comes on. He's the new leader. Maybe they're saying, I don't know about this Joshua fella. Is he going to be able to do what Moses did? And maybe Joshua himself had become fearful. And we assume so because Joshua 1 says on several occasions, did I not command you to be strong and courageous? Am I not telling you again, Joshua, to be strong and courageous? Aren't you supposed to act like a man? In fact, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, the Greek version basically takes that same phrase 
that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14, act like a man. Be strong and courageous. That's the New Testament translation. Act like a man. Be strong as you're waiting for the Lord. Now, we would often say, Lord, I I want to be strong. I I want my heart to take courage. But then we fold the tents. We become very squeamish. We allow our fears not to be replaced with confidence. And we don't wait for the Lord. And then we start making decisions on our own because we just don't see the Lord working. And then we receive the consequences that we'd hoped not to receive. Because what he says to us is, wait for the Lord. In fact, he says it twice. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. I want you to bow your heads with me. Father, you are so kind to bestow upon us onto the printed page Psalm 27. Thank you for allowing us to gaze upon your beauty through your written word. We thank you, we praise you, we worship you. We ask that you would melt to our hearts Psalms like these, especially when we're going through those times of uncertainty and great trial. Father, we're so grateful for uninterrupted, uninhibited time, even in the quietness of this moment. The only thing we can hear is the air conditioner. And we think of how your Holy Spirit can waft in and upon us to blow a fresh wind of regeneration, revitalization, renewing, Rebirth. Bring it to us, Lord. Be gracious to us. We plead with you to forget us not. Don't cast us off, Lord. Allow us more worshipers, more of those who will praise you and the hallelujah chorus of eternity. New souls, baptisms, new ministries, worship multiplied, and grant us favor. Don't turn your face away from us, Lord. Grant that we will be used by you And that you will allow us to meditate and to offer our sacrifices of praise 
and to do good and share. Let us praise you now in song. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.